hast been, thou forever will be. Uh, James 1.17 sounds very similar to that. As thou hast been, thou forever will be. As we continue to explore uh, the subject of the attributes of God this morning, we have seen thus far that one attribute leads to another, which leads to another, which leads to another. Uh, God is all these things. It is not that he is composed of parts, and out there is love, and out there is justice, and so forth, but all of these things God is. He is the definition of. Um, God is eternal, for instance. And eternity speaks of the duration of a state of being. Um, unchangeableness, which we are to look at this morning, leads, uh, or speaks rather, about that state itself. God is eternal, he is eternally unchangeable. Uh, God is infinite, and that presupposes his omnipresence. He is everywhere. Uh, that means that, uh, he, let's just say, he's everywhere, and he cannot change that in either place or character of being. If he is somewhere, he is there. He's not is there and isn't. Uh, with him there is no change in time because he is eternally what he is, always is. It must be, and so he must always have been. Uh, and that presupposes then all of these things, presupposes sovereignty. As someone who has always been everywhere, he is in absolute control of everything else. Everything else is that which he has created. And so, as one who is omniscient, he knows everything. And uh, therefore, there is no need for him to ever be changeable about anything. I mean, think about it. If he knows all, because he is in control of all, and that is why he knows all. He doesn't know all just because he's a good fortune teller, but he knows it because he's in control of it, else it could not be said that he knows it until it actually happens. So if he knows all, because he's in control of all, then he of necessity must be unchangeable in that area also. Or were he changeable, then he would not be sovereign in the area of his foreknowledge. Lest you fall asleep now in your chairs already, uh, let me simply sum this up by saying that his attributes presuppose and reinforce one another. It's not a study of the parts of God. It's a study of God who happens to be composed of various attributes. Now, the scriptures speak a lot about God's unchangeableness. Malachi 3.6, we just read, I am the Lord, I change not, he says. And therefore, because he doesn't change, you are not consumed, you are not destroyed. He is gracious. He doesn't change from being gracious to being something else. Uh, Isaiah 14.27, For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who shall disannul it? In other words, what God has purposed to do, he will do, and he will not change. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is like is, is in the hand of the Lord as the rivers of water, and he turns it with us wherever he will. It doesn't matter what the king wants to do tomorrow. He can lay his plans and so forth, but 
the final execution of those is in God's hand because it is part of God's plan. So think about it. If God were to be changeable, which way would he change? What, what would he change to? What would he change from? Would he change for the better? If he would, then he's not perfect now, right? He's not as good as he could be if he would change for the better. On the other hand, would he change for the worse? Well, if so, then he would become less than perfect. And we call less than perfect sinful. Uh, that which is perfect, as we believe that God is, and as he says he is, can not change, or else he is not perfect. If God could change, furthermore, could we ever be certain of his promises? Could we take a passage like this one from Malachi and, and put any certainty to it whatsoever? I am the Lord, I change not. If God could change, then that would have to be excised from the scripture. In the case of a human, uh, when, when do you know that a promise is absolutely ironclad sure? That's a question. In the case of a human, when do you know? Never. Not quite. When it is fulfilled. That's right. Until then, you don't know what's going to happen. When it is fulfilled is when a human's promise can be said to be ironclad sure. And as wonderful as someone who makes that promise might be, and as trustworthy as he has been in time past, and the fact that he may never ever have lied in his whole life, as much as you may be more than willing to take his promise to the bank, there is the possibility that circumstances may intrude upon his fulfilling of that promise so that it cannot be kept. We don't know for absolute certainty that it will be kept until it has been kept. Anyone who has ever been disappointed by another person, and I expect that's probably most of us in here, by a trustworthy person will certainly agree with this. No matter how trustworthy people are, there are still people, they are still sinful, and there are still circumstances which affect us. But God does not change because if he breaks his word, then he becomes sinful. And that proves that he was not perfect if he becomes sinful in the first place. And therefore, his promises are sure because his unchangeability, or the other word we use for that is his immutability, is sure. God's promises are sure because God himself is unchangeable or immutable. And therefore, we can trust him. So when he says, for instance, in Romans 8, 28, that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose, uh, when life deals us what we call a bad hand, and it happens, when, when hurtful and painful things happen to us, even though we are God's children, sickness, disappointment, and so forth. We can be sure that behind that lies the hand of God who knows all and who is in control of all 
and who is working out his unchangeable plan because he is unchangeably working that out in our lives. We can know that because he promises us all things, all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Let me hasten to say it does not say that all things will work for good. There are things that will work for bad for a lot of people. But for those who love God and are called according to his purpose, everything under God's providential sovereignty happens for their good. We don't understand it a lot of times. We wish it would work out a different way a lot of times. But we can always trust that because our unchangeable God has said so. And not only is he unchangeable, but he is also omniscient. He knows all. He is omnipotent. He can do all. All of these things, again, go together so that we can trust God and trust his word. Now that promise of God would be in jeopardy uh, if God was changeable, or if he was, we could never trust him to do anything. Like a human, the best we could do is say, well, I'll have to wait and see how this thing works out so I'll know whether God was really in it for my good or not. The doctrine of God's omniscience, <coughs> he knows everything, presupposes not only that God knows everything and all potentiality as well, but that he knows them all at once. Uh, it isn't that he that he directs that everything is going to be and then he watches it as it unfolds. Now he knows everything all at once. Everything now. Past, present, future. He knows it. He knows it now. And uh, if that be the case, then nothing can happen that God does not know about already and he cannot change in his administration of it as a result. Uh, or else he didn't know it. Yes, ma'am. Say that again. Please. Okay. If it be the case that God knows everything all at once, then nothing can happen that God does know, not know about already. And he cannot change in his administration of it, that is the way it works out, as a result. It is set. It is set. It is set. Even though uh, prayer... Yeah. We're going to get, I'm going to get to that. Okay. I'm going to get to that. So you're saying he never reacts to anything. He never he reacts. Yeah. Else, never mind else. So, <laughs> so, so far, we may say that God is unchangeable in his essence. Now, in our culture, we say, well, essentially, blah, 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 blah. And it's just kind of a word thrown out there that doesn't really mean much. Kind of like, like, you know. I was like, um, you know, what does that mean? It means ignorance, that's what it means. So when we say essentially in our culture, we mean something totally other than what I mean when I say that God in his essence is unchangeable. In theology, when you're talking about the essence of something, you're talking about that which makes it what it is, without which it would not be what it is. So God, in his essence, is unchangeable. Uh, it is not just, well, essentially God is unchangeable. No, 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 no. Kind of basic. Well, basically, God, no, not that either. 
God in his essence is unchangeable. He is immutable. And so from that comes the idea then that God is unchangeable in his will and in his purpose. He has set it apart. He is in the process of working it out. And from that also comes the idea that God is unchangeable in his love for his children. If there's anything that I hope you'll get out of this this morning, it is this. I mean, this is a very practical lesson. I know there's a lot of pain in this room. There has been a lot of pain in this room over the years. And there's going to be some in the future. And so it is important for us to understand that God is unchangeable in his love for his children. As Romans 11:29 says, for God's gifts and his calling are irrevocable. You know what that means? It means that if you ever were God's chosen child, you forever will be God's chosen child. What was that verse? Romans eleven twenty nine. If you ever were God's chosen child, you forever will be God's chosen child. It cannot be otherwise. Uh, this this to me is one of the one of the greatest things about Calvinism, uh, which is simply nothing more than than biblical theology properly understood, which is that if we are ever saved, then we always will be saved. We won't always act like it. We won't always perhaps have the assurance of it when we look at ourselves in our more introspective moments and understand what rats we are. But God knew what we were like when he saved us. He knew what he was getting, and he still did it anyway. And uh, so it, God's gift is irrevocable, because God does not change. He gave it to us in the first place. The gift of salvation will never be taken back. His call is irrevocable. He will not go back on his word to save those who put their trust in Christ. As the word says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It doesn't say that Christ died for us to see whether or not we were going to... Uh, uh, quote, accept Christ, to use the lingo of the culture in which we live, it says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Listen, as I said, God knew what he was getting when he saved you. He knew he wasn't doing all that hot, you know, getting that great a deal, if you don't know the truth. It certainly was the case with me. Uh, and yet, you know what? He did anyway. <laughs> he, he is gracious. He loves to save people. And he he doesn't play games with us. When he saves us, we're saved because he is uh, immutable, unchangeable. Uh, that, that ought to astound you to the soles of your feet that you, as you were, were regenerated by God and given the ability, the ability by God to reach out and to trust in Christ. If that doesn't astound you, then there's something wrong with your astounder. I'm telling you, it's just that, that astounds me daily when I think about it. This is what lies behind the hymn that we love and sing, which says, beginning in the second verse, summer and winter, springtime and harvest, sun, moon, and stars in their courses above, join with all nature in manifold witness to thy great faithfulness, mercy, and love.
pardon for sin and peace that endureth, thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide, strength for today, bright hope for tomorrow, blessings all mine with 10,000 beside. We don't usually think of it this way, but that is a hymn praising the unchangeableness, the immutability of God. And it well sets forth the great comfort and blessing that we can derive from this doctrine. Great is thy faithfulness. Why? Because God does not change. We are safe. If we are converted, our, and if they are converted, our loved ones are safe. Because God's love for his children and his children's children does not change. Numbers 23:19 says, God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Does he, not, does he speak and not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? The answer implied is no. When he speaks, whatever he promises, whatever he says, comes to fulfillment. Now, all this said, it is reasonable to ask, well, what about those passages which say that God repents? There are some of those. God's repenting in Scripture is an anthropomorphic way of saying, that is, a way of saying uh, in terms that human beings can understand it. Anthro, man, human, anthropomorphic, speaking in terms that we can understand. It's a way of saying that something mankind does makes God sad. We read in Genesis 6.6, 6, God repented that he had made man. Now, that is nothing, that doesn't mean he has something to be ashamed of. It doesn't mean that man sneaked up on him and started doing bad stuff when God didn't know that was going to happen or anything like that. The closest, the closest that we can come, I guess, to understanding this is man was being really bad. In fact, at that point it says that every thought of every intent of his heart was only evil continually. That's pretty much all of it. And that that made God sad. It re he repented that he had made man in that sense, not that he had done something wrong in making man. So, uh, for all the reasons that we have already discussed, that cannot mean that man slipped up on God because all of this was part of God's plan. Set when? Very Before. beginning. Before. Before. Before what? Creation. Yeah, there you go. Before the first rock was ever made, all this was set in motion. God had planned it. God was unchangeable in bringing it about. Or... Uh, neither does this mean that God uh, didn't know what mankind was going to do. God knew everything that every man was going to do. All of their thoughts and all that, God already knew. Now, if you wonder, well, how can that be? Well, just remember, we've already talked about this. We talked about the various kinds of wills of God, you remember? There's his decretive will where he decrees what's going to happen. There's his 
preceptive will where he has precepts which say thou shalt not do this and that. It's his permissive will where he allows things to happen as part of his decretive will which violate his his preceptive will. It is, it, is, it is childish and ignorant for the Christian to say, God could not have willed this when something mm -hmm. bad happens. Well, we can say that this doesn't make God happy. That's true. Uh, we can say that I don't like it. That's true. But in one way or another, whatever happens is part of God's will. It just is. So once again, we see something of the great value, I think, of being Calvinists or if you prefer, of being biblical Christians. Uh, we are saved not because we decided to accept Jesus or uh, decided for Jesus or something like that. And as a result, God changed his attitude toward us. That is not what happened. No, we are saved because God, our unchangeable God, elected us from before the foundation of the world and he worked out all the details of that salvation, and he has not changed. He decided, if I can use that lingo, to save us before the beginning of time. He worked it out in time, and it will continue throughout eternity in the future. So even if we drop the ball, we do not lose that salvation any more than we would disinherit. Think about this any more than we would disinherit our children when they drop the ball. We love them still. Now, I'll admit this, you know, if they dropped it bad enough, we might. But uh, it would have to be something pretty, pretty, pretty bad. And it'd have to be something that went on a long time. And we would have to decide finally that they were totally incorrigible and they weren't worth uh, anything. But you know what I mean. In the ordinary course of events, our children don't drop the ball. They might drop it pretty big, but we continue to love them. We may not like them sometimes, but we love them. We love them still. We love them enough sometimes to let bad things happen to them. When, when the, uh, when the, uh, the, the payback comes to them for being stupid and being evil, uh, sometimes that is. Even there, we love them. Sometimes they need to be brought up short when they sin, but we love them still. And when they honor us with their lives, we want to do everything we can to pour out our love upon them and let everybody know what great kids they are and all that kind of stuff. We have not changed in our love toward them either way, have we? We still love them. We're just flat out delighted to let the world know it when they do right, and, but we still love them when they do wrong. And so it is with God. He loves us with an everlasting love, and that will never, ever change. Verse 3 of the, I, I haven't addressed your question yet, so we will in a minute. I don't have it part of my notes. I should have. Uh, we'll talk about it. Okay? So, verse 3. So you might be thinking about how we're going to address that. <laughs> Help me out. <laughs> so, verse 3 of the hymn, Loved with Everlasting Love. Y'all familiar with that? We've sung it here a few times. Loved with Everlasting Love. Mm -hmm. Doesn't sound like anything I ever heard. <laughs> Here's what it says. 
Things that once were wild alarms cannot now disturb my rest. Closed in everlasting arms, pillowed on the loving breast. Oh, to lie forever here, doubt and care and self resign, while he whispers in my ear, I am his and he is mine. That's the benefit in one small verse there of believing, knowing exactly what the Bible says in this part about God, which is that God is unchangeable. Now, what about prayer? This is a difficult thing to discuss um, because it employs two apparently conflicting ideas. God's sovereignty on the one hand and God's changing his plan in order to do what we pray about. I'm not going to say it's an easy thing. To me, and I believe I'm right here, we pray in God's sovereignty. He knows we're going to pray. We pray about things, and uh, God doesn't change in order to fulfill that prayer, but he does fulfill that prayer as he was already planning to do. But, his, but our praying, I'm not going to say it's the means that causes him to change. That would not be right. Our praying is what he, what he wills us to do as we are dependent upon his good and loving administration of our lives. That him. You want to follow up on that? Or do you, Martha? You're pretty good at that kind of stuff. I'd fill a gap, maybe not gap, but just fill it in a little bit, and just say um, he, he always decides to use means to accomplish everything he does, yes. right? Yes. He doesn't just decide that Robert gets converted. He decides that uh, somebody shares the gospel with yes. him first. And there is nothing in all of this that's messy by saying God decrees that he's going to heal um, Eloise in the hospital yeah. because the people of Pearl Presbyterian Church pray for her. And so he doesn't just decree that she be healed. He decrees that they pray and she be healed. It was yeah. already foreordained. Oh, yeah. yeah. Everything is. Yeah. Everything is. Um, but the one sentence that Adam made at the beginning of that is uh, key to this. God uses secondary means. Uh, everyone in this church is a believer because some secondary means out there, some person told him about the gospel. May have been a Sunday school teacher, may have been mama or daddy or somebody you met on the street. But God uses secondary means to bring about his ends. One of those secondary means is prayer. That, that's a good explanation. Okay. Um, yes. I, I always, when I get to something like this, if it's biblical my, and, and I can't understand it, my thought is always God is so far beyond me. Okay that he does not, that, that I can't understand him. He's not logical in the way we think of logic. His definition of good is not the same as our definition of good. I mean, it, it yeah. just goes on and on that, that I just have to say, I believe what the Bible says. If I can't understand it, maybe someday I will. But it just... And that is key. The Christian must, must have his thinking start with the Scripture. 
non-Christian always has his thinking start with what or who? Himself. himself. That's right. And if he starts with himself, his own idea of what is right and wrong, true and false and so forth, he's going to miss it every time. It's hard enough for us who start the scripture to put all this stuff together sometime, but it is absolutely essential that we do so. Yes, sir. And just the perspective to look at it, you know, from a Christian or the way I've looked at it, it's an encouragement to do those things. If you know God has ordained something to bring about something else, Adam knows that God has ordained preaching to bring about the salvation of people, to sanctify people. And so that's his encouragement when he goes into the pulpit. He knows that God is sovereign. He knows that his word is going to be as effective you know, as God has willed it to be effective, but he's encouraged to step into the pulpit because he knows through his, through the preaching of the gospel, God has said, this is how people learn about me. Yeah. And it's the same way with prayer. We know that God is sovereign, but we also are encouraged to pray earnestly because we also know that God has ordained things to happen through our prayer, so that's why we pray. And I think it was in, um, at the end of Philemon, um, when Paul is writing to the people and he tells them, he hopes that through their prayers, he will get to come and spend time with them. He's writing from prison. Yeah. And so even Paul, who wrote Romans, which clearly explains God's sovereignty and his control, he still is counting and depending on the people's prayers to bring about what God, what hopefully what God is, has decreed. So it's really an encouragement. If you don't accept the sovereignty of God and him, plant, him bringing about things through those things, where is your encouragement to pray? Because then it's just... Yeah. If he's unchangeable, if he's if he's changeable, then it's just you know so shaking talking, up a, shaking up those that old eight ball toy. So we're talking God's use of secondary means again, and don't forget we've looked at this time and again here that the Bible teaches two things: one is the sovereignty of God, and the other is responsibility of man, and they go hand in hand. Uh, Genesis fifty: uh, You meant it for evil, God meant it for good. Bad stuff happened to Joseph. Uh, I'm sure it wasn't very pleasant. But looking back on it, he saw God's hand in every bit of it. The crucifixion of Jesus. Peter says, you, by the hands of wicked men, crucified him and you fulfilled the eternal decree that God, that Jesus was going to die. So both those things are taught. And our comfort is that God is unchangeable and that he tells us, his people, gives us his promise that we, that all things do work together for good if we love him and are called according to his purpose. The Calvin's Institutes is a, has a very, if you if you can stomach reading that big boy, it's a, it really describes what he's saying really well. It made me bring it to focus and it made it real easy. It's got a whole section on everything, that concept right. of, a, of God's will. Anything else? It seems to me, I remember way back, the children's catechism is a very simple answer. The prayer is asking God for things he has promised to give us in his word. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's why we always pray for God's will to be done. Yeah. If it is your As will. As we're instructed by Christ. Mm -hmm. Thy will be done. Yeah. Good discussion. Any more? Feel free. I'm enjoying it. Augustine was converted largely through the ministry of his mother, who, True. I don't know how that she prayed, preached a lot of sermons to him, but she prayed a lot for him. 
That's true. I know that I feel that I am a product of my mother's prayer life. Uh, I expect perhaps that some of you are also. I think that, I know it's going to sound kind of hokey and non-reformed, but I think that God kind of has a special place for the prayers of mamas for their children, particularly perhaps for their errant sons. Um, and their daddies. <clears throat> my daddy. <laughs> and I lost him when I was eight years old, but yeah. I believe it's because of his prayers. Yeah. So, so pray for your children and grandchildren. Uh, confident in the fact that God says he loves to save sinners. May not happen today. It may not happen a year from now. It may not happen a decade from now. But you keep praying, and the likely it is that God is going to one day bring that boy or that girl to faith in Christ. And if he doesn't, well, you at least have done your part. Anything else? Hearing nothing. Well, um, just to reiterate, I suppose, or maybe bring it back around, which maybe you were about to do, but like, even just, just thinking about somebody being converted like Augustine, that doesn't mean that when Monica, his mother, started praying, that suddenly God was like, well, I wasn't going to save yeah. Augustine, but now I am going yeah. to save Augustine. Rather, God's, God from all eternity says, his mother is going to pray for him, and it's because I'm decreeing that she's going to pray for him. Yeah. And, and she is going to pray years and years and years for her son. And I will respond. Yeah. And I will save her son. But he's always eternally decided he would do it. So he's not changing. Um, this brings up one other thing, too. I've got enough time to do it. Um, we can't totally comprehend and understand all this. I acknowledge that. But what is the option? A changeable God? A God who is not in charge of anything? A God who is not revealed to us truth? Yes, that is exactly what the option is. So both, both sides are taken on faith. The question is simply which one makes sense. This one makes sense. Uh, one, of the, one of the most iconoclastic thing in the world, I think, is an Arminian mother praying for the salvation of her child. Think about it. She ought to be praying to the child, not to God, since he doesn't have anything to do well, with it. Well, explain why. What, what about their belief? An Arminian, okay, good. Arminian says not that God has elected us and brings us. Arminian says that we will, that we have the capacity to come to Christ on our own without first being regenerated. And so I just kind of stumbled into church one day and maybe somebody invited me or something to preach against an altar call and I said, boy, that sounds pretty good. And I walked to the front or whatever and at the end of it, God said, thank goodness there's another one. I didn't see this one coming. That may be a little overstated, but that's pretty much it, you know. It's Any up to the individual <laughs> to do it. It's not up to the individual. And so that's why I say I think it's, you know, it's ridiculous to think of, a, of an Arminian parent praying that God would save his or her child. When on the other hand, that parent doesn't believe that God actually does it. There are very few really consistent Arminians I'm convinced. Anything else? Do you have a question back there, 
Susan's brother-in-law, I see a kind of a... No. <laughs> I see a fur of brow. <laughs> if I left something... The way I would pray when I was when I was in Armenia, because I was for quite a stretch, uh, I would pray, I, I tried to be consistent, right? I, and so I would pray for my friend's salvation, but I'd say, like, Lord, let things happen to him in his life that would make him want to change. Um, you know, let things happen. But even when you pray like that, it's like, how does he bring yeah. someone into their life yeah. without, uh, if he can't control any of that? Yeah. So even then, I, I, I would try to sort of, pray in a way that I thought was consistent, but I think that was part of the reason I came around eventually just to reform theology, because I just said, I need a God who's in control of everything yeah. and who can actually answer my prayers. Well, most um, people, I think, that come around to reform theology, or at least a great many of them, do so by reading the Bible and seeing what it says, reading it with an open yeah, mind. That wasn't, that wasn't what brought me around. speak to them. <laughs> yeah. It's like the Armenian God version of that would be, his answer would be, well, I'm trying to get him to, but he just won't. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> that was exactly what I thought. <laughs> I'm lucky I'm wringing my hands, man. I'm praying tears. Jesus is imploring, please come, come. Died before they got to do that. Well, let's go to the next one, see who else is down there. This goes back to the unchangeable thing, too, because I don't think there's a chapter on this, but um, also our God doesn't suffer. Um, when you suffer, then things happen to you, things that you don't want to happen to you. Um, you get frustrated. You know, you know, you're impacted by stuff that comes from outside all the time, and that's what suffering is. And and God can't suffer that way because He He can't experience that kind of change because He knows everything that's going to happen, and He can't be hurt by things. And so, um, I, I, if God can change, and if God can suffer then he suffers terribly he's actually the most suffering being in the entire universe because every single day when his law gets broken it impacts him and hurts him and uh you know i think this is a point i don't remember who made it maybe it's jonathan edwards or somebody who said but god is happy if you read scripture his purpose is never frustrated he is not uh struck or hurt um or wounded by us mm. rather he is delighted because even though his moral law is broken, his decrees always happen and always take place, so he never gets hurt by us. But remember, if someone says, but well, what about the repent? God said, I, I repent, I've made them. What about where he says, I'm sad. Remember, you've got the various ways of dealing with that with the wills of God. Don't ever lose sight of that. The various wills of God. They allow us, by scriptural warrant, to explain how God can be how his will can be uh, fulfilled, uh, which will do bad things, and yet it is within the will of God. Uh, this is silly, but I have this vision of Jesus Christ as the mediator. And they're sitting up, you know, they're right there together. And when I pray, I'm praying to Jesus Christ a lot of times. And I, say, and I could just see him talking to his father and say, hey, maybe this needs to happen. And I don't think that's silly. I think it's it's a, it's just a way that we yeah. can understand it. Yeah. Yeah. I don't yeah. think I don't think your prayers are gonna be disallowed because of that. I hope he doesn't laugh. He might laugh and say, Oh Lord, there she is again. <laughs> if he laughs at prayers, he laughs at all of them. <laughs> all right. Anything else? 
And if there's not, let's close with prayer. Heavenly Father, we are grateful to you, O God, for for the fact of, first of all, what you are. We, we, we praise you for what you are. We can't understand what you are. We can't comprehend it, but we can say some things about it. And for this, we are deeply grateful that you have seen fit to reveal yourself to us as you have. We are thankful, O God, that you are what you are to us, that you are our Savior, that you are the lover of our souls, that you are, O God, the lover of our children's souls, that you are, O God, the one who will bring us into eternity in a blessed relationship with you one day where we will have, be in relationship with one another, with our children, our ancestors, those who are yet to come, the great saints of the scripture, and everyone who's there. And we just thank you, O God, for that future which is laid up for us. Be with us now, I pray, O God, as we go into worship this morning, that all that we do and say and think there might accrue to the honor and the glory of our Lord Jesus, who is our Savior, and in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you.